All right, guys, welcome back. This is episode two, right? Mm-hmm. Episode two. Uh, we have a great uh, discussion plan for you guys today. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, what may bring someone into treatment, um, good reasons, not so good reasons. Uh, what does treatment look like? Uh, the different types of programs that you might experience uh, while you're going through uh, the recovery process. And what does treatment look like? When you go into these programs, how is treatment structured, um, the types of people that you'll meet there as far as clinicians, and um, next week on episode three, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, when is someone ready to complete treatment. All right, let's go. Welcome to the Sober Highway Podcast. We are two young social workers who've dedicated our lives and careers to affecting change in the addiction recovery community. We want to use this podcast as a platform to take the things we can learn over the course of our careers and share it with our listeners. At the end of the day, we hope to inspire as many people as we can to make a change and live a healthy lifestyle free of drugs and alcohol. So sit back, relax. Last week, or on the first episode, we talked about um, early recovery, and we did touch a little bit on the reasons why someone w- would want to go into treatment. Like, if that's what you have to say to get in the door, then we can work with that. But I want to expand a little bit more on that piece because there are so many reasons why someone would want to like stop drinking, to stop getting high, and seek out help. Well, and there's also the fact that people want to stop drinking or using, but they may not get into treatment right away too. Absolutely. I think that, you know, it's also a a common misconception that just because someone, you know, wants to stop drinking doesn't mean they're, or stop getting highs, that they're actually going to start like seeing a therapist or going to a program. Um, it may just be like a, like a, like a strictly like willpower type thing. Um, at least in my experience, I found that not to be the best type of recovery program. Uh, I found, I don't know if you would agree, but I found that when someone decides to stop drinking, but they don't really want to go to treatment, that that may be. Like, that's the first step of the recovery process. Like, okay, I definitely want to stop drinking. I want to stop getting high, but I can't do it on my own now. Like, I've tried just the not drinking part and just, like, resisting the urge just in my own head. But I just need help. I can't do it on my own. Yeah, and I think this is part of the reason why a lot of people have difficulty, right? And in therapy, Mm -hmm. we kind of think about the stages of change, Mm -hmm. right? And so for those of you that are not familiar with it, right, Right. there's different stages of change that Mm -hmm. many people in addiction go through before they truly commit to recovery. And so they kind of go back and forth with the denial and I don't have a problem into shifting. I may have a problem, but I'm not really sure if I want to do anything about it. I'm Mm -hmm. really ambivalent. And then, Mm -hmm. okay, maybe my life is unmanageable and I really would like to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And they might slide back and forth between some of these Mm -hmm. things. 
by the way, we can actually do a little bit more on the stages of change um, in a later episode. I think that would be a great discussion to have. For now, um, until we do that episode, I would say just go online, Google the stages of change, because that kind of has a lot to do with what we're talking about today. Um, and change is really fluid. Too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree with that 100%. Um, so what I think starts to happen, um, at least I've heard from a lot of my clients, is that um, – They'll make that decision that they want to stop drinking, they want to stop getting high, but they're not ready to go into treatment yet, like a like a program or see a therapist, because they still feel like they're being judged in some way. Um, they feel like being open with it, you know, being open to it or being open to other people about it. Just, I don't know. They're they're still a little they're still kind of guarded. I don't know. Would you agree? I would completely agree. I think that when it comes to addiction, a lot of people do feel like they're going to be judged if they go to an outpatient treatment center or a therapist, mm -hmm. which is why I think a lot of the peer support groups, like Absolutely. you know, like twelve step programs, they might feel a little more inclined initially to mm -hmm. start because they feel like, okay, these people get me, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's where the connection really starts. A lot of people need additional support too, mm -hmm. right? I think that's also really important to to keep in mind. Um, a lot of the a lot of the clinicians that I've met over the course of my career and all the programs I've worked at, um, they've they've struggled with addiction in their own, you know, in some form or another, whether it be in them within themselves or you know maybe a family member, a sibling, a significant other. They've experienced it and. That's why these people have dedicated their lives and careers to to this field. Um, I think it's really important to keep that in mind because, like I said in the last episode, there's a lot of times where um, a therapist might hear from their from their client or their patient, "Oh, this person doesn't get me. This person doesn't understand me. They don't. They haven't been through what I've been through." And a therapist who really goes by the book. And follows, you know, the this ethical code in some of some sort. They're never going to outright say, "Yeah, I was an addict." You know, like that guy from the Passages commercial, like I was once an addict and now I'm not. Like your therapist is never going to say that to you, but they're you might think that they are not able to relate to you. Um, you might think that they may have never been through what you've been through, but they have, and that's why they've dedicated their careers and their lives to, to this, this whole thing. Yeah. There's a lot of clinicians out there that have experienced addiction that affects the, themselves, their family. And like we kind of talked about last week in our first episode, right? There's many different types of addiction. It's not always drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. And so when I actually think about the majority of people in the world, we're all addicted to something in some way, shape, or form, whether it be coffee, shopping, mm -hmm. food. Oh, my <laughs> gosh, the list can go on, right? Absolutely. So I think that's very true that most therapists or clinicians, um, drug and alcohol counselors, in some settings, they might be more willing to share. Again, depending on if it's relevant to your treatment and if it's in your benefit, they may share with you. Right. That they are in recovery or someone in their family um, struggles with addiction or is in recovery. Um, but there's also the chance that they may not do that. And mm -hmm. again, that's not because they don't want to be honest with you, but it's in service of your treatment. Right. Because once once your therapist or your counselor shares with you that they are in recovery, then it becomes their therapy session and not yours. And when you're coming to a program or when you're seeing a private therapist and – you're, you know, you may be paying them out of pocket for, for your therapy. You may, you know, your insurance company may be paying this clinician for therapy. That kind of takes away from the time that you're paying for and that for your, that your insurance company is paying for. So that, that's just something to keep in mind. Um, what I will say is, um, this is actually one of the blanket responses that I give to, to my clients when, they all, when they share with me that they they don't think that I get them 
they think that because I'm so young and they're like old enough to be my mom or my dad or my grandma or grandpa, whatever, they're like, you haven't been through what I've been through. I say, first of all, I'm never going to tell you whether or not I'm in recovery, like I said before, because that becomes, then it becomes my therapy session, not yours. But when I ask you how something makes you feel, you know, that, that, quintessential therapist question. How does that make you feel? When I ask you that, I'm doing that because I want to see if maybe I can relate in my to some experience in my life that made me feel that way. Maybe I can maybe I've worked with someone who's felt that same that same feeling and I can share from experience of how I helped that person like if I can share how that person coped with with what emotion it is, then I can help you. Um, and that usually works most of the time. Um, and I think once you, once you share that with someone and you just explain to the person that you're just trying to understand where you're coming from, you're trying your best to understand that person no matter what, they'll feel more open talking to you. Yeah. And I think it's a very true, I mean, with clients that I've worked with, I've heard a lot of different things from them. You you wouldn't understand. You're too young. You're mm-hmm. this. You're that. Um, and ultimately, I always try to let them know, hey, you're the expert in your life. Maybe right. if you share yeah. more with me, mm-hmm. I'll be able to, like you said, understand the emotion, the feeling that you're going through. Mm-hmm. And whether it be from my personal experience, other people that I've treated, then I may be better able to help you in some way, mm-hmm. manage your feelings, express them in appropriate ways, cope with your feelings, um, any of those things, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that it's important for people to kind of know when they're getting in that there's a lot of different routes a therapist may go. There's a lot of different treatment modalities and, mm-hmm. and ways that people work. And like you said, they may not always tell you mm-hmm. that they're – they're in recovery. They might, again, if it's in service, I think they're, again, it depends on the, the clinician, what their style mm-hmm. is, things like that. So either way, just kind of keep an open mind. And you'll probably hear me say that a million times and be like, Anika, really? Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, but it's no, I'll totally say, true. I'll say it many times too. I'll say it a whole bunch. You'll hear me say uh, 100%. I think I've said that at least seven or eight times just in this episode alone. And I remember when I was editing the first episode, I, I, I remember hearing myself say it a lot. So, um, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe once we get to a point where, like, this po- this podcast is really popular, we could just, like, make T-shirts with all of our sayings on it, like, keep an open mind and 100% <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that that would be pretty <laughs> comical. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's jump let's jump into the topics that we uh, that we were we were talking about um, earlier. So what brings someone to treatment? Um, that's one of the first questions I always ask someone uh, when when I first meet them for like an intake or an assessment of some sort. Um, how did you find me? How did you find our program? What brought you here? Um, so what are some of the things that you've heard from patients or clients when you first meet them? I've heard... I hate how I feel. Okay. I don't want to feel this way. Uh-huh. I really like that when people come into me saying that because I feel like, okay, I can work with that. Okay. Um, I've heard my parents want me to come in. My spouse wants me to come in. My family, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, I caught a DUI. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm here, but I've tried everything else. Nothing else has worked. Yeah. I've heard a lot of those things. Um my experience primarily has been working in programs, so most of the things that I hear are, like you said, I got a DUI, I caught a DWI, I'm on probation, I'm on parole, um, I have a CPS case, and a lot of the re- a lot of the times I hear that is because when you have an agency referring, uh, you know, that's mandating you like probation or parole, or if you're court mandated or something like that. You have to go to a program that's accredited by the state, that has a state license to practice drug treatment. And so if you work for a 
if you work for a, a like a nonprofit organization like I used to, um, or if you work for a hospital, um, or if you work for like a therapy group, a lot of times you'll you'll have to have that license because it'll just make you more marketable to the public. So um, a lot of times, it for me, it's been either like DUIs, probation, parole, court, um, CPS, and stuff like that. Uh, and a lot. <laughs> the one question that I get all the time is how long is treatment going to be? Like, how long am I going to have to be here? And Or how many times a week do I have to come? <laughs> right, right. That's the, that's the main thing. Um, and it, it really depends on a bunch of things. It depends on, depends on your legal mandate, of course. Um, it depends on, um, you know, where you're at clinically, um, how, how much you're using, how often you're using, um, depending on the substance that you're using, if you need, um, if we feel that you need some type of like medication assisted treatment, like for opiates and stuff like that, um, that kind of indicates how long, um, a person may be in a program. For example, uh, when it comes to probation and parole, uh, in my experience, they the POs usually leave it up to us. Uh, That's uh, been my experience as well. Yeah, they they'll they'll refer to us and they'll say, you know, keep him as long as you feel he needs to be there. Send us monthly reports um, on his attendance, his drug test results, and when you feel he's ready to go, just let me know and you know send me a copy of the certificate. And that's basically it. Court is a little bit different. Um, I don't know if you've had any experience with the courts, um, but for me, we would get a lot of, uh, referrals from, you know, like treatment courts and drug courts. They actually have these new initiatives now on Long Island. I don't know if they're doing them across the state, but they, they have what's called felony treatment court, uh, which is basically anyone who gets arrested for a felony drug charge. Um, I don't know if it's just limited to possession or possession with intent to sell or, you know, like a felony DUI or something like that. But what they'll do is they'll make the person – well, they'll, they'll give this person the option. You can either sign this contract where you're mandated to treatment for 18 months and when you complete the 18 months of treatment, your charges are dismissed like you weren't even arrested. Or you can you can not sign the contract and you can go to trial and try to fight your charge where you risk the you risk facing the maximum sentence of whatever charge it is you have. And so a lot of times people will just sign that contract because they don't want to go to jail. They'll do whatever they have to do, sign whatever they have to sign so that they don't have to go to jail. And then they come to the program and then they realize that they have to start off in treatment like three days a week. They're like, I did not sign up for that. And yeah. then they'll and then they'll go to their uh, to the court and they'll be like, I didn't know this. I didn't know I had to do that. Well, you signed you signed that contract without reading it first. Well, and there's the other piece too. So that's like for outpatient treatment. If you're in residential mm-hmm. and you have um, drug treatment court, felony drug treatment court, mm-hmm. you're going to treatment five days a week to start mm-hmm. with, right? And again, right. like you said, I think a lot of people don't really recognize this. And so I think every program is different mm-hmm. um, and there are slightly different mandates depending on the the charge that's there, mm-hmm. um, the program that you're going into, et cetera. So there's a mm-hmm. lot of variation. So we can't say this is exactly what your treatment's going to look like, mm-hmm. right? Generally speaking... Um, when I was working in a program, if it was someone's first time, uh, in a program, usually we would try to start them off with, you know, um, like a group therapy session, maybe once a week. And then we would also put them in individuals, individual sessions every other week. Um, if we feel like they could use a little bit more supervision, we would put them in, in group therapy three times a week. And then we would back out the individual sessions. But if there's a person that has, you know, you know, significant clinical issues that we feel need to be addressed more often, we may, we may put someone in treatment 
five days a week or four days a week because if they're motivated, they're going to take that time and they're going to use it to their advantage. Mm -hmm. And when you go to a, like a therapy program, like a, like a, like a big group, uh, or a, I don't, I can't think of the word, but they have all different types of groups to address certain clinical needs. Like you may have, you may find like a trauma group. You may find an older adults group. You may find a women's group. Uh, and all of those groups over the course of the week address certain issues. So you're really kind of, you're killing, uh, you're killing like three or four birds with one stone. Yeah. And I think to break it down for our listeners, just so they really know about like, tr I'm kind of segueing into treatment, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's a lot of different types of treatment. So mm -hmm. you have your, your detox, which is your acute needs, right? Mm -hmm. So you're trying to get off drugs and alcohol especially when it comes to alcohol or any benzo, mm -hmm. it is really crucial mm -hmm. that you see a physician for mm -hmm. that detox because mm -hmm. it can be deadly. Yes, there there actually have been quite a few times where I will be doing an assessment with someone and they'll say, oh yeah, I'm drinking like a pint of, two pints of vodka a day every day and like I've kind of just decided that I don't want to drink anymore, so that's why I'm here. And I'll be like, "That's great, but you need to go to you need you need to be detoxed from alcohol." And they're like, "What do you mean?" I'm like, "You need to go to like a hospital mm -hmm. and and be detoxed from alcohol." And they're like, "Oh, I don't think I need to go to the hospital." I'm like, "Yeah, you do. It's really you do. You really do." It's something that's really important. So anybody that's listening, if you especially look, if you're using any type of drugs or alcohol and want to stop, it's, of course, in your best interest to speak to a physician. Mm -hmm. um, but especially so if alcohol or any benzo, so like clonopin, Xanax, Valium, Librium, anything like that, mm -hmm. it, those you really need to see a medical professional in order to stop using them safely. Mm -hmm. um, because there are deadly consequences for some people, and you never know. And when we say deadly, we mean that if you're drinking every day in high quantities and you stop, there is a risk that you could die. Right? There's, there's this. You could have seizures. You could have. You can start having hallucinations. Um, like there's so many things that come along with alcohol withdrawal and benzo withdrawal. And also, um, opiate withdrawal too comes with its cert with a with a certain level of physiological dependence, but it's not it's not fatal in any way. Um, I've heard people say that when they're going through opiate withdrawal, it it feels almost like having the flu, and so a lot of times, if you're using if you're using an opiate of some sort. You may want to seek out medical detox, but it's not often that if you – it's actually very common that when you go to the hospital and you're looking for opiate detox, if they're busy and they don't have beds, they will turn you away because you're not going to die if you're going through opiate withdrawal. Yeah. I've actually had someone go to the hospital, to the emergency room and say, I want to detox from opiates and they'll – and the person, like the triage nurse will say, our beds are full, so what I need you to do is I need you to go home, come back tomorrow, and tell me that you're trying to detox from alcohol, and we'll get you in. Yeah. Because they, the nurses even know that it's not fatal if you're, de if you're withdrawing from opiates, but if you're detoxing from alcohol or benzos, they'll put you in right then and there on the spot. And one of the other things with detox, too, a lot of the times they'll say, come, I've heard hospitals say this over and over again, come to the emergency room with active withdrawal symptoms, mm -hmm. right? Which, again, can be very dangerous. Mm -hmm. So I just want people to really um, understand, try to seek out medical help as soon as possible. Right? And and if you, can't, if you can't make it to the hospital because, you know, you don't have a car or you don't have a money, you don't have money to get on the bus or the train or whatever – Call 911. They'll come get you. It may take a little bit longer. And if you're worried about insurance, hospitals will apply for insurance if you do not have any. Right. A lot of the a lot of the hospitals have social workers that are dedicated to meeting with clients that are that are not that don't have health insurance and helping them apply for it. So if that's an issue that you have, um, 
you know, don't worry about it because, first of all, the hospital is never going to turn you away because you can't afford to pay. And that's another thing uh, that is very important to understand is that according to state law in New York, I don't know how it works in other states, but Oasis licensed programs in New York State are prohibited from turning someone away from treatment simply for the for the sole reason that they cannot afford to pay. So if you feel like you don't want to go to treatment because you can't afford it, that's bullshit. Get up and find a program, find treatment in some some way. Yeah. All right. So after after detox, um, once you're once you're discharged from the hospital. They'll usually try to set you up with a referral to um, either an outpatient program for aftercare or they'll probably try to set you up with, uh, with a residential program, whether it be short-term or long-term. Um, so let's touch on the residential programs first because um, I think that's where most people get a little bit nervous because obviously residential program means – you're living there. You're not going to be home. And that comes along with the questions of how long am I going to be there? Mm-hmm. And one of the most common residential places is a 28-day inpatient, right? Right. Although most insurance companies will not pay for 28 days now. So it could be as short yeah. as four days or it could actually be as long as 28 days depending on what your usage right. looks like. Right. And at this type of program, they're basically going to – they're going to reach out to the hospital – while whether it be while you're still in the hospital detoxing or once you uh once you come for your intake appointment and they're basically just going to ask the people at the hospital how was this person how did they present what were the types of things that they worked on if anything while they were there um are they motivated are they um you know like tell me basically just tell me everything i need to know about this person and when you get to that 28-day program, your your discharge planning starts as soon as you walk in there because you're only there for, you know, two to three weeks if you're lucky because your insurance is paying for it. Um, and at these programs, you're gonna meet you're gonna meet people that are in similar positions to you. They're trying to navigate that early recovery process. They're trying to get their lives back together just like you are, and I think that's a that's a great thing because you get to learn you get to to learn very quickly that this is not this is not something that you have to fight through alone. Yeah. And these are very structured programs too, right? So typically you can expect that you have a certain time that you wake up, you attend yes. groups, mm-hmm. you attend individual therapy, um you get medication management, you speak to their mm-hmm. psychiatrist. Um, but again, there's a lot of structure to these programs. It really is focused on larger groups and smaller groups. And so again, they will offer certain things depending on what program they are, but typically they'll separate them into women and men mm-hmm. um, for certain groups and then bring them together for other groups. Right. There's a lot of lot of structure that comes along with residential treatment, and that's why I think that that residential treatment usually has the best outcomes for people, at least in my experience. If if someone can stay in a residential treatment program long term, I'm talking like months and months. Yeah, which tre- is a different type of program. Which is a different type of program that we'll get to. You can expect the you can expect the outcome to be um much more positive, much more long lasting. The results that the results that you can expect to see from those types of programs are like the things that you see on TV where you're like, I got, I got my whole entire life back. You know what I mean? But, um, I think that nowadays we're starting to, we're starting to move away from that because, because these insurance companies just don't want to pay for long-term treatment. They don't want to pay for residential programs where, when someone can just go to an outpatient multiple times a week and they can pay out less for that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Well, and I think some of those long-term programs too, right? So we're talking about ones that are three months, six months, a year, mm-hmm. even longer in some cases, right? right? They're harder to find. They're harder yes. to get into. Yep. Um, a lot of times insurance will not pay for them. And mm-hmm. this is a transition a lot of times from maybe that 28-day program that we traditionally consider rehab, right, into mm-hmm. a residential where people have a lot of supports on all fronts of their life, right? Mm-hmm. So they have a safe place to live. They're getting their meals. They're now going to um, their treatment program, right, um, which is normally stepped down over the course of weeks, months, even years. Mm-hmm. And they help find work, school, vocational programs, et cetera. So that's why these programs have great outcomes a lot of times because they have so much support. And, again, they're, they're treating so many different aspects of a person's life at one time. Mm-hmm. I think that I lost my train of thought. Damn. You'll hear that a lot too. I lost my train of thought. Um, I think that residential treatment in any way, shape, or form, whether it be short-term or long-term, really – I can't – I keep keep losing my train of thought. I think that obviously if you can – if you can stay home and be there for your family as a provider, as a, you know, as a father, a mother, you know, in some way, shape, or obviously try your best to do that. But think of, think of residential treatment as a, essentially like hitting the, re, like hitting a quick reset. You know what I mean? If your if your home environment, if your work environment, if whatever's going on in your life is a little bit too overwhelming for you. Think of that residential program as a as like a month or a couple of months to to just remove yourself from that and think about while you're in there how you're going to address all those things as you know once you get out. And even beforehand before you go into those programs if you're able to have a talk with your partner, you know, um or your children say I need to go I need to go take care of myself for a couple of months or a couple of weeks whatever it is while I'm gone this is this is what I would like to see you guys do I mean I hope I hope that you guys can can hold it down while I'm gone because when I get back this is where I hope to be and I hope to be the type of person that you've always wanted me to be yeah, and I think that's one of the things that's lacking, especially in this country, because I know in New York there's not very many programs that do this. I actually was really lucky to work in a program that worked with mothers and their young children, a residential yes. treatment program, right? But mm-hmm. there's not that many of them, and I think mm-hmm. we really need to do this, and not just for mothers, for fathers too, right? Mm-hmm. More family residential treatment where people can really stay with their families, take care of their kids, learn how to take care of their kids in sobriety. I think that would be an amazing type of program. I think all residential programs should have that type of service. Um, I could think of only one off the top of my head. And it, it would it just be fantastic if if every residential program could have it could have that type of service but they don't and if there's anybody listening that you know does this kind of program planning Mm -hmm. think about this as a need yeah maybe right (laughs) like hmm you know if you if you're looking for people to come to your program you know why not offer this and you know bring more bring more money in i mean think as much as as much as we love helping people and as much as we want to help people succeed like when once you start going higher and higher up the corporate chain like it starts to become like i i really hope it's not like this but this is what i have noticed is that once you get higher and higher up the corporate chain it starts to become less about the the you know the person to person interaction and more about money. Yep. And so the CEO of the program is thinking like how can we bring in more money for our program so that we can make improvements to our program, 
Meanwhile, the 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 social worker that's sitting in the office is like, how can I make how can I help my clients' needs better? If they're not they're not thinking about money. Yeah. If anything, they're they're looking at the CEO saying, okay, well, if there's any changes that I need to make to my daily routine to help the company bring in more money or any way that I can use my skills to move along whatever initiative you're trying to work out, then I'll do that. But I need to make sure that my clients are good. That makes sense? Yeah, it, it makes complete sense. And again, I, I would like to say in the future, there's going to be more of this this family treatment because I think that it is really important. But I know that there's some people that will disagree with me and be like, I think people need to work on their recovery first without any distractions. But that's not always feasible for everyone. What if you're mm-hmm. the sole caretaker? You're a single parent. Right. right? And you don't have any family because you burned all your bridges. Mm-hmm. Where are you supposed to go? How are you supposed to get treatment? You're not going to leave your children alone. You're then it puts you in a position where okay, I could put my kids, you know, um, in foster care and go get treatment. Not everybody wants to do that. Mm-hmm. I think one of the really cool programs that I worked out uh, that I worked at uh, out east on Long Island, it was the the residential adolescent program I was telling you about. They have so many services available to these to these clients that it was that was really what draw that that drew me to this program because not only are they not only are they getting treatment there, they have a vocational staff that will that will reach out to your home district as soon as you get admitted to the program and they'll set you up with schooling in the building. So that way, when you go home or when you complete treatment, you go home, you're not behind in your credits. You're you're still on track to graduate high school. Um, the vocational staff will help you find jobs. They'll help you apply for college. Um, we had we did have a couple of people uh, that were you know 18, 19 years old that were coming in that were of college age before they were even admitted, and they'll they'll set you up when you're applying for colleges with online classes so that you can sit and you can get your education while you're in treatment. Um, they have a family department where they do family groups every week. They have a meeting just for the parents of all of the children in the program so that the parents can form a network of their own and you know, get treatment on, on their own. So it really gives me hope that at some point in the future, there will be that type of – that one-stop shop type of program where you can get absolutely every single thing that you need to make the recovery process so much easier for people. Yeah. Because once you have that type of program, like a fully comprehensive program, that's when you're going to start to see more and more people getting into treatment. I think that – Forming that type of program is such a huge undertaking that people are are very nervous to do it. People are very nervous to do it, and there's not a lot of, you know, services offered like that. I know, like you said, the residential place you worked at with mm-hmm. teens did that, and the residential place I actually worked at as well with young mm-hmm. women um, and their, their young children – did that as well, um, where they really provided all of those things. So they provided childcare while they were in treatment or at work. Right. Um, they provided the vocational piece to help get into college, uh, get working, etc. They had their outpatient treatment, then they also had groups at the residential um, facility. Then they went to twelve step meetings. So they had a lot of different um, things coming their way. But again, I think we're kind of on the path, New York State is is trying to do some grants, I know, in, in regards to that and helping some of the programs build up um, more services. Mm-hmm. So I think we're slowly headed in the right direction, but it is a long road. Um, and I think that for a lot of people, too, they may not get into these programs. And there's nothing wrong with that. Your recovery can totally be solid and great without having access to these or not necessarily being able to attend one of these for whatever the reason might be. Mm-hmm. Um which, you know, then we shift into just our traditional outpatient programs, right? Right. And before we get into that piece, I think it's really important to understand that just because there isn't a one-stop shop for these types of things that you're going to need in the recovery process, it doesn't mean that they're not available to you. When you get to a residential program or even an outpatient program, your counselor is going to 
is going to help you find all of these services and help, you know, weave it into this recovery fabric, if you will. I'm doing this hand motion right here. Um, well, and I think also advocating for yourself too, right. right? Like as long as you tell your therapist or your counselor or whoever it is what you need and what you're looking for, we're going to try our best to find that for you. And the more motivated you are, you're going to you're going to work through all of those leads that we give you and you're just going to you're going to be able to coordinate that for yourself. Um the reason why we're talking about the importance of having this comprehensive program is because we feel that the more you know the less traveling the less you know work that a person has to do in recovery especially at the beginning the more likely someone is going to be to put their foot in the door yeah um okay so the out the, the regular outpatient program that that we all know and love or that that I know and love well and so there's Multiple, just like there's multiple yes. residential, there's multiple outpatient there, programs. Right. So the 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 quintessential outpatient treatment program that you think of is, you know, it it basically looks like a regular doctor's office when you walk in. There's a waiting room. You have the reception staff and everything, but behind the scenes you have you have social workers, mental health counselors, vocational counselors, psychiatrists interns um and stuff like that and they all manage their own caseloads um depending on the size of the program or the group uh you could be a a specific clinician or intern could be managing anywhere from 20 to 30 clients i know that when the first uh outpatient program i worked at i was managing a case so i was pushing 40 clients but that was also right before – like during COVID. So there were people coming and going clinician-wise. Um, so we wanted to see as many people as we could. We didn't want to turn people away because we were overwhelmed. So we were trying to see as many people as we could. But before – like prior to COVID, I don't think my queso was ever higher than like 30. I've had slightly different experiences, right. you know, I've, I've had higher caseloads for sure. But again, don't kind of let that deter you. Right. From... That, that has no, that should not have any bearing on um, whether or not you decide that you want to go to treatment. We're just giving you a kind of like a behind the scenes of like what it's like for a, for a counselor. But anyway, so you'll have all these different types of clinicians, social workers, mental health counselors, interns, psychiatrists, nurses and whatnot, and they come together and they form what's called the treatment team. Okay? Uh the treatment team will usually have a meeting once or maybe even twice a week to talk about um to talk about issues that clinicians are having with their clients. Um you know, if say um for example, if I was if I was having an issue with a, a client about like a specific clinical issue or they were looking for a specific service that um, I was having difficulty finding for my client, I could ask my peers during that treatment team meeting like, hey, does anyone have any um, anybody to call about this type of service? Um, that's also the time where um clinicians who have done you know intakes or assessments throughout the week they can bring them and say hey this is a new person this is what they had to say this is where they're at clinically this is what i think would be appropriate for them as far as individual therapy group therapy you know um psychiatric services and stuff like that what do you guys think and then everyone will go around the table saying okay i think that's good or i think maybe we can tweak it a little bit and then they would be assigned to groups at that meeting. They would be assigned to a, to a primary therapist at that meeting. And then that person's program would get started from that meeting. Um, and then the primary therapist would call that client, let them know what's going on, what the result of their their assessment was. And then it's up to the patient or to the client to say, okay, this is what, you know, I'm cool with that. Let's get started. Um or that's not cool with me and I want to get a second opinion, which is perfectly fine. And we'll even help you find another program if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, 
one of the things that I stress to people, especially going when especially when it comes to detox, like we were talking about before, if you come to me and you're telling me that you're drinking, you know, two pints of vodka every day, and I tell you, in my opinion, I think you're gonna need detox, and you tell me that's bullshit. I don't want to go. I'm going to go find another program, like get assessed at another program. I'll tell you, yeah, that's fine. You could do that. I'm not going to stop you here. Take a list of other programs. But I think you're going to be very hard pressed to find an outpatient program that's willing to take on the risk of working with someone who's drinking like you are. Yeah. And if that, if, if you want to go that route, I'm not, I'm not, trying to like stop you or anything but you just dropped a $50 copay to come see me for this intake so you're going to pay another $50 for another program to tell you that and then you're going to be frustrated because they're not going to take you either yeah so well and in in New York and I'm sure in other states too they mm-hmm. you we use certain assessment tools mm-hmm. within all of these these treatment programs so whether mm-hmm. it's you know inpatient um residential um, outpatient, anything, we use what's called a locator, right? And there's a yes. certain set of criteria we kind of go through and it can mm-hmm. help assist us to determine the right level of care for you. Right. So even even when like when we meet with a patient or a client and we tell them that we think that they need detox, we still have to go through this, um, this process um, – and answering these questions on the locator, uh, the, using the locator tool, and if there, if the locator like tool like result is not in tune with what we're recommending, like that's going to be a problem when it comes to insurance because the insurance company is going to want to know, okay, you're you're trying to get this person into, you know like outpatient treatment like tell me about this person like what substances are they using are they u- are they putting themselves at risk at risk for withdrawal do they have any type of um like are they taking medication and things like that and based on our answers to those questions they're going to say well this person needs detox forget outpatient they need detox first so it's not even it wouldn't even be up to us at that point it's up to the it's up to the state like the state determines what they think is appropriate yeah and i think it's just important for for clients to kind of know that that like it's not always like our arbitrary like decision making right like mm-hmm. there's a set of criteria that is based in medically and clinically sound evidence and, mm-hmm. and research on why we're saying this is an appropriate level of care mm-hmm. for you there there have actually been you know quite a few times where like if you're wor- like if a counselor's working at a residential program and they're trying to justify you know there there may be all these clinical reasons as to why it may be the best for this person to be in residential treatment but when you go on when you go on the state's website and you're answering all these questions in the locator tool again this locator tool is only is only available for like for clinicians to use, like you have to be like a licensed program to be able to have access to this. But like when you're, when you're answering these questions and you get like, and you get that final result, like that's, that's what it is. Like when you go to a, like an insurance company and you're trying to justify why this person needs to be in treatment, they're going to say, okay, well, did you do a locator on this person? Yes. Okay. And what was the result? Well, the result said outpatient treatment and they're going to be like, boom. We're not even we're, we're done paying for residential. This person needs outpatient done and they'll hang up the phone. So there's really there's we're only able to do so much as far as as advocating. Yeah. Well, and so going back to kind of outpatient, right? Mm-hmm. So once that that clinical team meeting is held, mm-hmm. we can kind of then say, okay, these are the groups, right? And, and so there's your intensive outpatient program, right? right? Which is the higher level of care in the out patient realm Mm -hmm. and so typically that would be anywhere from three to five days a week for Mm -hmm. several hours each day that you attend the program right right and that's in a nice group setting hopefully no larger than 15 i know that occasionally sometimes they can get a little above that but typically 
they should be around 15 or under. Mm -hmm. Again, occasionally they can go over. Um, and so while you're doing intensive outpatient, again, you're going to those uh, groups every day or three times a week for mm -hmm. a couple hours. You have your individual session once a week or once every other week. Mm -hmm. and you have medication management, if you're taking any medication, right. um, about once a month. And again, that can vary slightly. And, and typically, again, that's a step-down program. So maybe you're in it, say it's a five-day-a-week program, you're in it five days a week for two weeks. Then you get stepped down to four days a week. Then exactly. after two, three weeks, you get stepped down to three days. And so over the course of a, a couple months, typically your intensive outpatient program then shifts into outpatient. I think it's also important to realize that, you know, intensive outpatient can sometimes be a very, very big commitment for someone. Because, um, again, as soon as they hear five days a week for multiple hours a day per day, these people, like, they have jobs. Like, they need to be able to work. They can't just put everything down because they want – because they have to come to treatment. So what you'll notice is a lot of programs, when they do IOP, um, they'll they'll put the program either really early in the day, like first thing in the morning to, like, you know, like the early afternoon – or they'll have it in the evening um, towards like the end of the day for like right before the program closes. So that way people can still have a full-time job and be able to come to treatment. Yeah. So when, when you go to a program and they present this option to you, they've, they've scheduled all of this stuff based on their experience to find like what times work, what times during the day work. Um, and ask, right? So if you're somebody that's working, ask the program when you call, hi, what time are your, what time are your programs, right? Or mm -hmm. if you go for an intake, I work from the hours of blah, blah, blah to blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Will your program work for me? Mm -hmm. Right? So just asking too, because sometimes I know there are some programs that do more typical, um, morning ones and they don't offer evening. And so mm -hmm. it's important, again, they can refer you to somewhere that does offer evening if that works for you. Right. Like the program I was working at, they only had out, uh, I'm sorry, they only had IOP in the mornings. So if someone has like an early morning job, they can't make that. Well, there's a program not far away from us that has a morning and an evening IOP. So, you know, that's just one of the reasons why someone may come for an assessment with us and end up not starting treatment with us. So, um, there are programs that will fit your schedule. Right. Like they, I can't even tell you how many times where we'll meet with someone and they seem like a great fit for our program. It's just their, our treatment schedule doesn't work with their work schedule and it's unfortunate, but that's just what it has to be. And, and so then when we think about regular outpatient, that is either that's kind of where you step in initially. So a lot of people go into regular outpatient programs that's not intensive just by calling an agency, right? Mm -hmm. um, or because they're getting referrals for, from either a hospital, parole, probation, CPS, et cetera, right? And so the, the, you go through the intake process. They determine you do not need intensive outpatient, right, mm -hmm. or any other higher level of care. And so you go into your normal outpatient program, mm -hmm. which is normally anywhere from one to three groups that are typically an hour mm -hmm. a week. Right. Um, in addition to weekly or biweekly individual therapy and then your monthly medication management. Right. Right. And those groups are pretty specific, um, at least in, in my experience. I don't know about yours, but typically they're like, like I ran trauma groups. Mm -hmm. I've run women's recovery groups. I run early recovery groups. Yeah, we we used to set up like our general recovery groups like based on where they were at in the recovery process. So if it was someone's first time in treatment or, you know, they were kind of still trying to get their feet wet, we would we would put them in, you know, the early recovery group and then there was kind of like a middle, you know, like once they've established, you know, a good three, four, maybe even five months sober, we would put them into like the like a relapse prevention type group. Um, and then we also had those specialty groups like you were talking about. Like we would have a women's group. Um, we would have um, we would have an adolescent group, which I love to run. 
Uh, we would have women's group. We'd have co-occurring disorders group. We'd have trauma group, older adults. Um, those are only offered at certain times of the day and at certain days of the week because of their uniqueness. Like we can only offer them at certain times because we want to try and capture as many people as we can. Like having only two people in a group or three people in a group, it it's good for the – it's good, but you really want – you really want to create like a – I'm trying to think. Like just – I feel like it's just the more the merrier. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when I worked in an outpatient substance abuse um, facility, I also worked in their mental health section. But yeah. in substance abuse, I ran a women's group, and it, I started it. and So I initiated it, and so I tried to think of the women – that were in the program, not just with me as a therapist, but with other people. You know, I talked to my clinical team and I said, hey, do you have any women that would be interested in this? What does mm-hmm. their schedule look like, right? And so I took the time, and this is what clinicians do, um, mm-hmm. that a lot of people don't necessarily know the, the behind the scenes, right? right? And so we kind of find out all this information to see who would maybe be interested. How do they fit the criteria? Do, is there anything that's concerning, right? Um, that maybe wouldn't make them a good fit for the group in any way, which doesn't happen often, right? Right. I think that it's it's also important to know that these things take a lot of time. So when when we're trying to put together a new group or you know kind of change the schedule for things, like there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes in a program like that. Because again, when you're working in a in a big corporation or a big nonprofit, or when you're working for, say, like a city agency or a state agency, like a lot of things go into that. So you have to work through all, you have to get through all that red tape before you have like a finished service that you're ready to provide. So, you know, it's, it, I'm just saying it's very important to keep that in mind. Yeah. And so, so that's kind of how some of the, the groups get created that are maybe more of the specialty groups typically Mm -hmm. the the early recovery the relapse prevention those are kind of in place for quite some time and everybody that is in an outpatient program kind of goes to those um in some capacity and i i also want to say um not only are there like what makes what makes a nonprofit organization so awesome is that not only do you have the people that are, you know, on the front lines meeting with patients and doing things face to face, you have those people that are that are behind the scenes that are looking at the looking at the trends that we're seeing, like the ages of people coming in, uh, the split between male and female, um, you know, the types of services that we're providing, the quantity of services that we're providing, and they're looking at ways to ways to improve the program, the workflow and stuff like that. So it's really it's really interesting to be a part of that, especially when you're working on the front lines because when when those people that are working behind the scenes come and say, "Hey, we've noticed this trend. We think that this type of service may be um may be good for for our for our program. What do you think?" I've, I can tell you from experience, I've had that conversation with people and I've said, I'm going to tell you right now, that's not going to work and here's why. Mm-hmm. But more often than not, before they even come and they bring that suggestion to the treatment team as a, as a potential like improvement, they know, they know that it's going to work. And more often than not, it ends up becoming that, that new therapy group, whether it be a trauma support group or a an adolescent group or a women's group or something like that and you know those type of outpatient programs they could last anywhere i I know people have been in outpatient as short as a couple weeks absolutely yeah to two years right yeah right so again it really depends on what's going on how invested you are to changing to your recovery um and what issues you're struggling with, what are, are challenging that may not have anything to really do with addiction, right? Um, but, right. but maybe there's a lot of work that you need to do in individual therapy on some trauma history. Or maybe you really need help securing housing and vocational services before you can really feel very stable in your recovery. And so that's why outpatient programs can be great because they help with a lot of these things. Right. I think a lot of social work is rooted in case management. 
or vice versa, case managers reading so anyway, the point I was trying to make is if you if there's something that you need that you think could help you in your recovery program that you're not getting or you don't or that you want and you don't know where to find it, let your counselor know, let your therapist know because ultimately we're trying to provide the best quality service for you. And we're trying to make the recovery process easier, just just easier. There's really no there's really no other way to put it. Um, and it's important to know that our pro like the outpatient programs that you see um, that are in the community they're always evolving. They're they're doing their own research to figure out how can they evolve to meet the needs of their community, and they're looking at the trends that are happening statewide, nationwide. And also, like, right in their own community. Yeah. Because different communities have different needs, right? Exactly. And even in terms of drug use, we see in different pockets of the country, there's different drugs that are more popular than others. And sometimes that does take a different approach, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that that's just important to know. And, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of shifting into our last type of treatment, I would say, is your individual therapy. Not with an agency. So, like, somebody in private practice, potentially. Um, or a group practice of therapists. And then there's Mm -hmm. obviously therapy involved in those higher levels of care we've talked about as well, the individual therapy in an outpatient program or inpatient residential. Mm -hmm. And so typically when we think about therapy, we're thinking about once a week. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes it is uh, biweekly. But typically for best results, we're going to think about once a week, uh, Mm -hmm. anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour, Mm -hmm. right? And that's the clinician that you're going to talk about um, everything kind of with, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of the groups, um, if you've been in any type of program or anything, are going to be more generalized in some way, um, sometimes focused on coping skills, recovery skills, relapse prevention. um, And then some groups are going to obviously be talking about maybe some more personal issues about um, how to deal with trauma. So you might not delve into, I know at least for the trauma groups that I've run, people do not delve into their personal traumas within that group. Right. They're talking about skills on how to deal with it. So how to deal with flashbacks, nightmares, exactly. um, those type of things, right? Um, and process trauma in a way that they don't actually directly speak about it. Your individual therapy is a great time to delve into that trauma because mm-hmm. most of us have had some sort of trauma. Right. And that that's like okay, how do I start to connect with this therapist, right? We touched Mm -hmm. on that last week. Mm -hmm. If you feel that, if you feel that you don't have that connection with your, with your therapist, it's very, very important that you let them know. Um, Especially when you're working with someone on a, on a, like a private, like that's in a private practice because it's just them. So if you're not happy with them, it's not like you can say like, oh, who's that person over there? Can I try working with them? It's like if you don't tell this person that you're not feeling it, then you're stuck. Yeah, and I think it's also important for people who are looking just for an individual therapist, not in any of these other settings, right, Um, to make sure that whoever you go to specializes in addiction and recovery Mm -hmm. if that is one of the issues you're struggling with. Right. I mean if you're you're at a point in your recovery where you've you've gone to detox, you've been in in an outpatient drug program for, you know, months and years and you're kind of – I don't want to say you're you've solved all those issues, but like you're at the point where you're you're stable in your recovery. You're stable in your recovery, and that's not really something you're willing to you, you want to address. And you're really kind of looking to address, say, your family issues, or you know whether it be that trauma or an issue with anxiety or depression or something like that. Like you don't necessarily need to go to somebody that's specialized in addiction and recovery, right? Right. right. So I think, again, it's going to kind of be dependent on where you are Mm -hmm. and and what the issues are. Right. But I still think it's important that you let your therapist know that you are in recovery because I think that's a a very important piece uh, for them to keep in mind just because if they start, you know, therapists can – infer things based just on your presentation so they may be wrong but it's also it's always good to know as much about as 
it's in my experience as a therapist, it's always best to know as much about your clients as possible. So um, it's not a deal breaker if you choose not to talk about it, but at least just let us know that this is something that you have worked on and are pretty stable with. Yeah, and I can say as somebody in, in private practice now, um, when I do have clients come in, most of them are pretty open about, hey, I'm in recovery for five years, 10 years two years, I feel pretty stable about it. I, I, I feel like I don't struggle the same way that I used to, mm-hmm. but you know, I really struggle with my partner. I really struggle with um, feeling anxious, mm-hmm. those type of things, right? And so we can work with the things that you're presenting with, but also kind of keep an eye on and kind of in the background of like, Hey, so how has that been if you're struggling with a lot of anxiety and I know that you have a history of use and you come in and you seem really off. Maybe you're you're nodding off on my couch. I might kind of be like, hey, what's going on? Right. Right. Um, and, and so again, it's it's also that I can help if something does come up, right? I can kind of help assist and guide uh, to get some services if that ever becomes needed. And then for right. other people, they really they tell me about it and they never talk about it because it's not relevant to their treatment in in therapy. Right. Um, so I think that is all for this episode. Next, uh, in episode three, we're going to talk a little bit more expanding on this um, and touch on when we feel that someone is ready to complete treatment. Um, we'll also uh, discuss uh, New Year's resolutions because we are coming up on the new year. And we're also going to talk talk about goal setting and how to structure your goals to make them conducive to your recovery. All right, guys. Catch you in the next episode. Until next time. Bye.